Hello and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and uh, guys, I'm just going to cut straight to it. Uh, today, I'm going to be talking about part two of the East Rail 177 trilogy. This film is, uh, obviously, if you know anything about this trilogy, it's, it's called Split. Now, the, uh, when I talked about the last film in this trilogy, I was joined by my old friend, uh, Professor Allen, and he's been kind enough to rejoin me for this episode. So, uh, Professor, welcome back to the show. I'm happy to have you. I'm glad to be back for the first time since the last time. Yes, yes. And uh, I guess as far as the listeners are concerned, um, the way I'm thinking it's going to be is this is hopefully going to be a weekly release. So for them, it's been several weeks for you and me, <laughs> but for them, hopefully it's been just the one week. So um, Perfect. Um, now, before we get going into uh, the uh, synopsis and the studies and the analyses and all that fun stuff, um, do you have an origin story for this film? And if so, would you care to share it? Not much of one. Uh, you know, DVD, maybe a year or so after it came out, what would that have been, maybe last year sometime? And then uh, again, about three days ago for this. Oh, okay. Well, uh, my or my origin story is not quite as succinct, but it's close. Um, <laughs> basically, I heard about this movie when it was com- you know when it first came out, and for months thereafter, I somehow avoided you know it's not a spoiler anymore, but you know the big spoiler that's related to this movie. Um, somehow I missed it, and when I found out about it, you know I got to tell you this is one of those times when uh, a spoiler did kind of take me out of. Okay. The movie a little bit if i had it again um it's hard to say you know knowing what i do but if i had it again i would i really do kind of wish that i had seen this movie not knowing of its relationship with unbreakable um you know in the end you know that's not how things happen you can't you can't cry over spilt milk i suppose but uh did, nevertheless, you, did you find yourself sort of looking for that anticipating that um, like, no, I mean, was, I knew that Was that a that distraction it, for you, or what was the... Um, no, it was uh, It was more that it wasn't a surprise. I, I knew that it, you know, the big... Re- right. <clears throat> the yeah. big, um, I, can't, I don't know, reveal, twist, spoiler, whatever you want to call it. Uh, David Dunn in the diner. <laughs> David Dunn in the diner. <laughs> we, we adore alliteration. Um, yeah, it. Uh, that's basically going to be the very last thing that you see in the movie, so don't bother looking for it any sooner than then. But it was just... You know, I'm of the opinion that sometimes, maybe not always, but sometimes the best thing that you can possibly do is go into a movie knowing nothing at all about it. And then you can just right. follow follow the movie wherever it goes. And I think that would have been a pleasurable experience in the case yep. of Split. But like I say, that's not how things happen. So no sense whining and crying about it. I did it to and, myself. And I do understand they kept that, they kept that last scene out of at least most of the original, you know, critic, you know, critic screenings and that sort of thing. Really? Uh, at, okay, at now least, that I did at, not know. At, at least the earliest, at least the earliest screenings. So they, they did their best to keep it under wraps. At least that, that, that was my understanding. Oh, okay. All right. I, I did not know that. That's actually very interesting. And, uh, <clears throat> Because, wow. you know, it, it, it really was not until that opening weekend. I mean, they, it really was a word of mouth situation. It was people who had seen it. That's my, my recollection. So that 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 sounds right, you know, thinking back a couple, two and a half years now, yeah. that it seemed to be people who had seen it with that 
you're never going to believe what happened. A, a, well, and that actually you know, kind of leads into something. Approach. So I think, so I, I, I think those early opening night audiences went into it without that, without that reveal. Oh, all right. Well, like the thing about it is, um, this came out on uh, Friday, uh, January the twentieth, twenty seventeen, and um, this is, uh, you know, I just, I don't know about you, but sometimes I think back to like, you know, well, where was I and what was I doing? And it's like I was really miserable. I remember being like just out, out of my mind, miserable at, you know, in January of twenty seventeen for a bunch of reasons we don't really need to go into here, but. Um, suffice it to say, you know, having seen this movie now, you know, one of the things that I really do, you know, uh, uh, appreciate about it is the fact that there's a slightly different, and we'll get more into this in just a sec, but there is a slightly different cinematic style that's employed in this movie as compared to Unbreakable. This is not completely a stylistic sequel. It is a narrative sequel, that's undeniable, but stylistically you can see there's not as much connective tissue between the two films as you might think. Right. So, um, I, I wonder how much, how much of that is Shyamalan growing, you know, 16 years later, whatever it would have been, or if it's the Blumhouse, uh, you know, connection, how much that influenced or if, or if Blum and Blumhouse was more that, that they got together after the fact, or is it a, what that relationship was? Yeah. And I never, that I don't know. Yeah, and I, it's one of those things that I was sort of conscious of even before we started planning this, like actively planning this series of episodes. And what I decided is, you know, uh, Professor, I'm not sure where you're coming from with stuff like this, but it's like the older I get, the less I, I want to know. You know, I, it's enough for me to watch your movie or watch your show or listen to your album. I don't necessarily need, need to know how the sausage got made. Right. You know, sometimes ignorance is bliss. And um, so that's just been kind of the baggage that I, I've been. Yeah, I, I put that into two different categories. One is I'm not I'm not interested in what the filmmaker, author, director, musician, you know, who uh, painter, sculptor, you know, whoever the artist is. I'm not interested in their perspective on their work and them explaining to me what was meant. So I'm I, so that that I'm not interested in. But I do, I, I sort of separate that out from sort of behind the scenes sausage making. Hmm. Okay. You know, sort of in the, in, in, into two different categories, but. Well, fair enough. All right. Well, um, anyway, so to get into the, uh, the uh, Wikipedia uh, summary here, because that seems to be the easiest way to work through these things. As you mentioned earlier, I don't think this is necessarily the best summary that could, that, that could be made, but it is the best that I was able to find, so <laughs> I go with it. So, anyway, um, Casey Cook, and this is a synopsis, Casey Cook is a withdrawn teenager, and it, this this summary kind of leads with a little bit of a reveal. Yeah. And I kind of have issues I with would, that. But Yeah, I feel free to skip that. Yeah. Okay. Fair we enough. We can sort of work our way back to it if you know if you're comfortable with that. Um, fair. Well, and there's some other things to say with yeah, that as well. Yeah. But uh, uh, anyway, so Casey Cook is a withdrawn teenager. Period. After a pity party invite, or rather, after a pity invite to a birthday party, she is offered a ride home by her classmate Claire, and Claire's father, along with Claire's friend Marsha. 
As the girls wait for uh, Claire's father in the car, he gets knocked unconscious, and Casey, Claire, and Marsha are all kidnapped by Kevin Wendell Crumb. And I don't know if that's completely an accurate way to phrase it, but that's what the the yeah. synopsis <laughs> says. It's actually Dennis who who does the kidnapping. But anyway, this is a man who's suffering from uh, dissociative identity disorder, DID. Kevin is in therapy uh, with uh, Dr. Karen Fletcher, who has identified, actually, you know what, before we get into this, let's just go ahead and uh, park it right there. Um, Just as a kind of preliminary little bit of analysis with uh, with this opening sequence here, one of the things that I kind of like is um, only a, I, I think only a fool would deny the very deep, clear, and obvious uh, Spielberg influence that Knight has in, I wouldn't say all of his movies, but certainly many of his movies, and certainly a lot of his more famous ones. And we get, uh, to me, it's kind of a, it's a Spielbergian concept applied to M. Night Shyamalan's more, time was, you might call him a budding auteur, now he's just an auteur. And so it's kind of a Spielberg influence on Knight's uh, auteurship. Mm-hmm. It's Casey basically sitting separate and apart from uh, the birthday party. And what I like about it is that this is a very slow version of that famous Spielberg uh, like push in simultaneous zoom out effect. I, I don't even know what to call it except the Spielberg made famous in Jaws. This is a very slow version of this that it basically gives the background the appearance of swimming around. And the reason I think it's so effective is it's this lingering opening shot of Casey sitting by herself. And as the push-in combination zoom-out effect is uh, achieved, it gives the appearance of Casey moving further and further and further away from her supposed peers. And so it basically visually expresses <clears throat> it visually expresses the uh, distance and alienation that exists between Casey and the other kids at the party. And I just think and, that's... And dang, haven't we all felt that way? Yeah. Alo- and, alone in a crowd. Well, yeah, and I think there's um, a little bit of... Uh, there, there's a little bit of a, of, of a personal connection here with me just because of the fact that uh, the actress is Anya Taylor-Joy and just the kind of physical type that she is. I wouldn't mix her up with my friend whose name I swear to God is Casey, but you can, <laughs> but I do see they are the same. They, they are the same basic type as one another. And then of course they've even got uh, same name, same last initial, you know, Casey C. <laughs> and so, <clears throat> you know, I've got a kind of a personal connection to it just sort of right there. It's just really well done. We cut to, um, the uh, the car in the parking lot, and this is the our first glimpse, and I do mean it's a glimpse. At least I I see it as a glimpse of of Dennis. And if you look closely, as Casey's father is loading a bunch of stuff into uh, the trunk of the car, if you look at the bumper, you can actually see the reflection of. I assume oh, wow. this is actually the camera, mm. but. I like to think of it as because you can see wow. the legs moving around. This is actually Dennis that we're seeing. So is this actually a flaw in the movie? Well, you can kind of no prize it by saying, no, this is Dennis that we're seeing in the, refl- it's not actually the cameraman, even though it, it is a cameraman, <laughs> but I kind of like, works. Think, but it works. Yeah. 
Yeah. And sometimes, you know, like you see little goofs like that in movies and it's kind of obvious. No, the camera cast a shadow right there. We, we know what we saw, but here, well, you can no prize it. So, um, obviously we only see Claire's dad for a minute or two. He doesn't seem to be a bad guy. Seems actually kind of a decent dad. And you know what? Claire seems like a decent person. I mean, she's trying to do the right thing. By inviting Casey, even though she knows this is how it's going to be. Casey is going to, it's not even she's going to be left out. She won't get involved. Yeah. But she and invites we immediately, her anyway. We immediately see how different she is. You know, the other two are in their back or you know, in the back on YouTube. And she actually has situational awareness. Yes. And Thank from, you. and then we also learn from the abductor's point of view that she's extra. She was unwanted. And there's a theme for you right there, right? She is, she is again, the unwanted one. Yeah. And I like the fact that he doesn't pay her any, it's almost like he doesn't even completely realize that she's in the car because she's, she's not interacting with Dennis at all. The only reason Dennis, uh, let's face it, date rape sprays the other two girls is because they rolled to him. He, you get the idea he might not have, date rape sprayed Casey except that she tried getting out of the car mm-hmm. and no she may not have been one of his original targets but she is nevertheless a potential witness and we can't have that so she's got to come too so put it down to a bonus I guess I don't know so um, anyway so Kevin is it, in therapy mm-hmm. is, is, is it right at this point that we go to the opening credits because they are displayed in a 6 by 4 grid Yes. 24 squares. Not sure if it's right here a couple minutes later, but no, I think it's right here. obviously that that brings in or, or relates to a uh, a theme, of course, and that's repeated in the in the end credits as well. Oh, indeed it is. And so you don't necessarily notice it as a thing right away, but it is. Yeah, you might. I think somebody who knew nothing about this movie and is watching it for the first time might think that's just kind of an artsy fartsy stylistic flourish. No, there's some symbolism in there, and, uh, well, we're going to get into that actually sort of right now. Now, Kevin is in therapy with Dr. Fletcher, who has identified 23 distinct personalities of Kevin, not 24. Something tells me we're coming back to that whole 24 thing before too long. In his mind, meaning Kevin's mind, these personalities sit in a chair in a room waiting for Barry, allegedly the dominant personality, to grant them their turn in the light, meaning in consciousness, in control of Kevin's body. She, meaning Dr. Fletcher, has also found that Kevin's physiology changes with each personality. Recently, Barry has refused to allow Dennis or Patricia their turns in the light, in part due to Dennis's tendencies toward uh, bothering underage girls. I guess that's as good a way to put it as any and Patricia's undesirable traits, and also because both appear to worship a mysterious entity known as the Beast, who plans to rid the world of the impure. Fletcher has found out that she can bring Kevin's own personality back by speaking his full name. And there's a lot here to unpack. This may be, honestly, the biggest tangent that we take in this in this episode. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Um... Basically, it's not it's weird how this how this synopsis it spoils some things but doesn't spoil sort of other things. But basically, 
all of these different altars that um, control Kevin's body at different times, these are basically the products directly or indirectly of some very, very intensive abuse that Kevin underwent at the hands of his mother during his early childhood. And um, look, people, we're all, we're all products of our life experiences here. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and so I want to be careful how I say this. I don't, I relate to Casey and Kevin on some things, you know, not from the standpoint that I was ever abused or anything like that, because I don't really think I was, but, you know, I don't want to foist a bunch of bullshit on Professor Allen that he's not ready for. And, you know, he didn't, let's face it, he didn't sign up for, but it's enough to say that, you know, life has presented me with certain challenges that I've never talked about on mic, and I probably never will just because it's better that way. Suffice it to say, you know, there's an element of this that, you know, we, like I say, we all come up with our own through line. Mm -hmm. We are the sum of our experiences. Yeah. And that's, that's mine. And so, um, speaking in riddles is, uh, really the best I can do for something like this because it's just better that way. Um, but what I will say is that as I was sitting here re for the rewatch of Split for this episode, I did come up with some theories that, uh, Professor, if you'll indulge me, I'd, I would like to run by you. Uh -huh. Specifically, this relates to the function of all of these different altars, because none of them are here by happenstance. They all serve, no matter how strange some of these altars may seem. They all serve some kind of purpose in protecting Kevin. Uh, uh, before that, let me just jump in and say about just the way the the synopsis has, has gotten us to this point. You talked about reveals and spoilers, because in terms of the the way that the movie unfolds, a lot of this stuff we're a good twenty or thirty or forty minutes from getting. Yeah. And it is revealed to us much more slowly than this. So the, the synopsis gives us an exposition dump here, but that's not the way it's presented in the movie. It just out of out of fairness to the movie, I wanted right. to, to mention that. No, and that's that that's a that's a fair thing to bring up because you know, I mean I would hope that nobody is watching this or rather listening to this episode before watching the movie. That would be just such a tragedy. But it you know Still, there is honesty. We want to be honest with the material. So, yeah, no, that's a good thing to point out. But in terms of the uh, the the function of all of these different altars, you know, or at least those that have any appreciable amount of screen time, um, and also the order in which they likely emerged, I I've got some ideas on that, and uh, you know, I would like to run them by you. I'm not saying I'm right. You know, I don't want you to think you have to agree with me. If you disagree, I'm interested to hear your thoughts. But basically the way that I, the way I think this this worked is that Dennis was probably the first of the altars to emerge. And it this is actually kind of explicit in the movie. The function that Dennis serves is he was the one that was basically it was his self-assigned task to sort of assuage Mrs. Crumb's abuse. You know, she would basically abuse Kevin when 
she perceived that there was a mess that he made that needed to be cleaned up that had not been cleaned up. And so Dennis, his function was to basically arrange things in such a way so that there's no possible way for Mrs. Crumb to come after Kevin and basically abuse him. And my my sense of this, you know, uh, Dennis's OCD, cap- uh, uh, OCD tendencies, this was his function, and I don't think he was successful. You know, do you do you agree with that? That he was first. I was going to say that that does make sense given the you know what what we learn about that that abuse at that very young age and and some of his mom's issues, shall we say? So mm-hmm. it makes sense that 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 would have emerged first. I wonder if, as Kevin's gotten older, to some extent, he's outgrown. Dennis perhaps and doesn't need him as much and maybe part of that struggle is Dennis not willing to take the back seat that maybe he should be taking in Kevin's development at this point yeah I I I would agree with that I obviously there are a lot of dark sides to Dennis and I can't help thinking if Dennis still served some kind of role in protecting Kevin from Kevin's mom would those dark sides have ever emerged and there's an argument that maybe they wouldn't have or there's another argument that maybe they were there all along who's to say but but they were there and had to turn their attention to some to a a different task correct Mm -hmm. and the reason I think that maybe this is a manifestation of Dennis not having anything else to do um he seemed awfully, I'm not going to put too fine a point on it, but he seemed awfully efficient at kidnapping the girls. This is a guy who, it seems in his mind, I think he's rehearsed this or something like it for a very long time before he ever actually did it. I, and it just yeah. kind of makes me think, you know, the fact that, you know, he has, he's just so methodical, he's so precise in everything that he does. It could just be that this is a natural talent that he has, but I mean, this is, you don't just wake up one morning and decide to do this. I mean, you or you don't even wake up one morning and someone talks you into doing this. This has got to be in some way or another a reflection of your natural character, I think. So, uh, I now, in fairness to Dennis, I do think he does see a tiny bit of redemption. Not much, and it's not in split, but I do think he, he does eventually find a small sliver of redemption. So there's that. Now, next is Hedwig. And I would suggest that Hedwig also emerged during Kevin's childhood. And I think the intention for Kevin was basically, or not Kevin, sorry, Hedwig. The intention for, for Hedwig is that this can be the expression of childlike innocence, you know, forever young. This is, this is an element of Kevin who can always be this is the person who, who didn't have to uh, be abused, who didn't have to be beaten. He can always live ignorant of some of the uglier experiences that Kevin was forced to live through. This is a manifestation of that. There what, is time, a, what time frame do we think, age-wise, that this started happening to Kevin? Well, it's explicit in the movie that Dennis emerged when, when Kevin was three. Now, we don't know... Go ahead. I'm curious. I wonder if, I mean, Hedwig is age nine. Mm-hmm. 
I wonder if Hedwig emerged before Kevin was nine. I wonder if he was emerged as a big brother at one point. Yeah, and and I, then eventually, and is now a little brother. Yeah, because he, because he's, he's always nine. And um, yeah, it's he's, and and that's the thing. I mean, you know, we're we're doing a lot of speculating here. The movie doesn't really answer a lot of this, but you know, I I do think that you know the way that Hedwig sort of talks about Kevin, he still has a little bit of that big brother pride. And I kind of have to wonder, you know, was Kevin nine at the time that he emerged, maybe when Kevin was four? And it just sort of makes you wonder, you know? Um, Next is Barry. And I think Barry, this is more, again, this is a theory. I don't know this, but I think Barry came next. And I think he came next because there had to be some kind of a manager and Kevin can't do it. There needed to be somebody who's a leader who could be organized and let, and basically determine who's in the light at any given moment. Okay, this is Dennis's moment to be in the light. Now it's Hedwig's turn. Okay, now it's okay for Kevin to be here. Now it's okay for me to be here. You know, he would, I think, he has to be, he cannot possibly be the first. His function has to be managing others, and the only way that makes sense is if there are others to manage. So he has to be latest or earliest he has to be the second i think the latest he'd have to be is the fifth so it's up for grabs uh what do you think i, w- I would lean more towards yeah like four or five somewhere in there because if it's just one or two i don't know as m- the more there are the more managing the more right. a manager is necessary <laughs> so yeah all right so uh next uh, we we don't really get there are other altars to talk about but most of them don't have a lot of screen time in this movie the other big one i think is uh, patricia now i'm gonna go way out on a limb here and suggest that she actually emerged further into uh, kevin's adolescence maybe even getting into adulthood and i think that she's she kind of manages the other altars but i think her main her main function is she navigates grown-up social interactions. Uh, she's this very buttoned-down, authoritative uh, British woman. Very different from the other alters. Different even more than I would say Hedwig. She's she basically has at least the stereotype of uh, sort of British upper crust, um, impeccable manners there's a darkness to Patricia as well. And you could almost kind of consider her to be sort of like a type of religious fanatic. Um, And I think the reason that she needs to be a religious fanatic is one of the functions of religion in just kind of a sociological sense. I'm not trying to demean my own faith or professor Allen's or anyone else's, but just on a, so uh, on a just kind of primal level, one of the things that religion does is it helps us process life. And, you know, I actually had a little bit of, I'm not, again, I'm not going to talk about it because it's sort of personal, but I kind of had a little bit of a religious epiphany myself about a month ago or a few weeks ago, three weeks ago, I would say. Um, It helps you put your life experiences into some kind of context. Mm -hmm. And I think and if you disagree, I'm des- I'm very eager to hear what you have to say about this. But I think she's, in part, 
she emerged to help Kevin find some sort of meaning in the hardships that he had to endure, especially in his early childhood. Um, you know, you've got the floor. What do you think of that? That's interesting. You know, depending what age he's at and, and, and state of development, what would your version of an authoritative, powerful replacement mother be? Hmm. And, and that's that's not bad, you know. But you, uh, you you could see Patricia filling a role like that, or or something um, that a version of maturity, mm-hmm. even a version of not professional, but almost faux professional. I mean, we 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 don't know enough uh, uh, enough about that personality, about that alter, about her. Uh, uh, to really comment on that, but but yeah. that is but as, as you said, that is the first impression. The first impression is buttoned up, professional, upper crust British. So maybe the perfect nanny <laughs> slash new mom slash you know Mary Poppins in a, in a business setting. You know, it's a, you, you sort of almost you know the I mean, that the, you know the way you're describing it. I you know I I I, I can see some of those things coming into focus in her. Yeah, with a dark side. Yeah, um, and honestly, it's all in how you look at it. Is it as dark as Dennis's dark side? I think it's a matter of perspective. But a dark side, nevertheless. And I guess since we're we're on the subject, there is another major alter that plays a huge role. I would say more in the conclusion of the film, which is the Beast. And I think with the Beast, what you see is what you get. You know, he emerged. I think this is his first appearance. He emerged, obviously, during Kevin's adulthood. And I think the Beast, I think his function is meant to be the final word as Kevin's ultimate protector. He won't need anything else besides this. And as with Dennis, as with Patricia, and I would say even with Hedwig, you could say, all of those characters have dark sides. The Beast is the dark side. He doesn't have a whole lot of redeeming value. And, you know, I can't help thinking that if Kevin hadn't been abused, maybe the Beast wouldn't be, well, such a beast. But then if Kevin had never been abused, there's no reason to believe that any of these altars would have ever emerged in the first place. So, Or to put it in the, maybe closer to the, somewhat the the, the language of the Beast or of of, uh, his, his acolytes, you know, that 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 altar is the final evolution of all of these dark sides. It's, it's the mm. final step in him developing a dark side. I like that. You know, I no, I like that. That is really good. Um, so I, the thing is, I mean, it's reasonable to think one of the things that I, one of the questions, and again, maybe I'm just reading too much into this. I'm going into a level that maybe Knight didn't intend, but you know, Kevin, what little we, we see of him in this movie, he, he's very self-sacrificial and kind of saintly, you know, he is definitely the put upon victim. And one of the questions that I had when credits rolled for this film was how many of these altars are sincere and real uh, personalities unto themselves, and how many of them are dumping grounds for Kevin's own inner turmoil and his own darkness. And 
I can't really say with any kind of certainty about the other altars, but I've wondered more than once if the beast isn't the manifestation of every single uh, broken bone, every single black eye, split lip, broken nose that Kevin had to endure wow. when he was a kid. Right. It has to go somewhere. Now, don't mistake me for a psychologist, but there is, this does seem to be the prevalent belief in the field of psychology that people have a natural development curve. You know, you cannot be an adult until you're an adolescent, but you can't be an adolescent until you're a child, mm -hmm. except you can't be a child until you were first a toddler. And if any one of those stages before adulthood gets stunted, you cannot move forward until you have completed um, the function of that of that particular phase of cognitive development. And so I've I'm kind of branching off something here that you know all of this pain and suffering and fear that and let's face it hatred that Kevin had to have experienced when he was a kid it had to go somewhere and we don't see Kevin exhibit any of it. And so I'm kind of wondering, you know, if the beast is basically all of those things boiling over. So anyway, let me just comment on one thing you said, just to put your mind at ease sure. about how deep you uh, are worried that you're diving into this. And that is a theme uh, M and I mentioned on more than one occasion on the old short box showcase. <laughs> and that is that it doesn't matter what night intended he, he, he's done he finished three years ago whatever you're getting out of it now is fine it's there yeah, if, you're interpret, if you're interpreting it it's there don't worry about what the author intended it doesn't matter right and yeah and I, I I do agree and in fact you know what now's a good time since we're tangenting now's a good time for me to say so publicly that was a great episode so uh, anyway um <laughs> It, it just validated a lot of opinions I've got, so it was a great episode. You should be very proud. You and M. Both. That is the definition of a good episode. It validated everything. I, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right. Now, there was actually, uh, before we move on, there was actually one, there was one minor point that I, I sort of glossed over before, but I do kind of want to bring a little bit, I want to bring out a little bit more here. Um, Hedwig is a big brother or that was originally what he was. He was the big brother. Um, having not been able to serve in a big brother capacity, I think the years have not been kind to him. Yeah. He's got, he's not as bad as Dennis and I don't think he's as bad as Patricia. Definitely not as bad as the beast, but he's got a little bit of darkness of his own, you know? Um, and one he, of his roles, I think within, if I can use the phrase within the horde, um, one of his one of his purposes is to be mischievous, yeah, and to be mischievous to the rest of them, to some extent, and that oh. meant that, that's a key plot point of, you know, further on down the line. And he has a a, a moment with uh, this is the first time we actually see Hedwig, and I honestly, if I can critique this movie, I think this was actually a misstep on Knight's part unless it wasn't. But I do kind of wonder if this was a misstep on Knight's part that he, that Hedwig is definitely on the side of the horde, meaning he's pro-beast in some way or another. And he seems kind of thrilled by the fact that these 
girls, we haven't really gotten to it yet in the synopsis, but they're on their way to a very bad ending. Yes, and he, and knows, it. And he yeah. knows it. Yeah, he does know it. And he doesn't seem all that put off by it or weirded out by it. And one of the things that becomes apparent very early on is that Kevin, or rather Hedwig's motivation for uh, joining forces with Dennis and, and Patricia, in a sense, they are kind of using him. I mean, yeah, he is kind of a beast fanboy. There is that. But he has the ability to seize control of the light whenever he wants. Now, guys, you need oh, to understand right, right. that used to be Barry's role. Right. Barry was the one who controlled who was in the light at any given at any given moment. And now Hedwig has that ability. And one of the things that the movie doesn't make entirely clear, and I don't really I'm going to be honest with you, Professor, I don't have an answer for this. When did this change? And I get I get the impression it was recently. But when did this change and how did it happen? How did it come about that Barry basically ended up? of all things, losing control to Hedwig. And the only thing that I can come up with is, number one, this is a recent development. And number two, it's basically Hedwig, his vestigial abilities as the big brother. He can, in some way or another, outmuscle everyone else. Right. And, and But in the discussions with the doctor... Barry, um, Dennis, they they at least mouth the fact that things are as they always have been. At least that that that's my impression. Hmm. Is that they're talking in present tense that Barry is still in charge, although I think Barry no recognizes he's lost some days. Uh, Along, along the line but I'm not sure that all of that everyone that all of the altars necessarily know that Hedwig has the, 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 become this powerful mm. yeah and the thing about it is I mean it's or if it's think... not something you're supposed to admit to Barry <laughs> or, or that Barry's not going to admit to, even if he recognizes it, or maybe you know it's. Well, I get the idea that Hedwig is, um, like you say, very mischievous, and I get the idea he. It's not necessarily known, and I don't think he would necessarily be upfront with the other altars in the dark right. room that they're all living in. Right. Um. In terms of how it all came about, like I say, I mean, I've rolled out my best guess for that. But I get the idea this is something that Hedwig has – he hasn't taken control of the light very often before Barry starts noticing things. He hasn't done it very often, and this is maybe something he hasn't told anybody ex except maybe Dennis and Patricia. Maybe they figured things out. I don't know. Right. But um, this – you know, there are times when you sit here and you watch a movie or something like that, and I think you get out of it whatever it is that you get out of it, and your personal experience is enough for you. There, there, this, I think, is one of those times when I honestly would not mind sitting down with the author and basically just trying to figure out a little bit of world building here. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm all for, you know, uh, personal interpretation, but there are instances where getting 
some more background info on certain things would be welcome. And they say that, you know what, the highest compliment that the audience can give is when they demand more. It's true. So, you know, he said it now just to kind of, uh, pull the curtain, uh, down a little bit. There are other altars, uh, and we do see a little bit more of them, not so much in split, but we do see more of them in, in the future. I don't want to get too much into that stuff right now because it does kind of get into, at times, minor spoilers, at time at times, more major spoilers. But there are other altars that we're not going to talk so much about here. Um, but one of the things that, you know, before we kind of move move on here, uh, one of the things that I, I do want to just sort of emphasize is um, not all of these altars are necessarily on the same page with one another. Mm. You know, just because they're all altars of, uh, of the same essential mind, that doesn't necessarily mean that they agree on ways and means. And I think that's going to become a little bit more of a plot point when you start asking yourself, well, why do we keep seeing Hedwig? Why do we keep seeing Dennis? Why do we keep seeing, we have all these other ones to choose from. And we see even little videos of some of the other altars. Why aren't we seeing more of them now? And I think there are reasons for that. in as much as they're not necessarily on board with the plan here, with the beast. Mm. And so, um, anyway, maybe that's as far into that as we need to get for right now. Um, do you have anything else you want to chip in on that before we move on? Mm-mm. All right, no. cool. All right, so getting back to the beginning of the movie, uh, Dennis locks the... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true, isn't it? Uh, uh, Dennis locks the girls in a cell in his underground quarters. They recognize his DID, which, just between you and me, Professor, I don't think they would. I think it would take a long while for that penny to drop, but whatever. I, I, it's a movie. You know, I, I also don't think it's correct to say they did. Um, yes. You know, Casey does. Casey knows something is happening. She, well, she, she knows something is happening with, she, but she just has more, she's more, but we learn why worldly wise mm-hmm. about some of these things than, than, than the other girls do. There's a great line. It's a, couple minutes from here from from where we are but they're talking about uh you know we have to attack him and one of the girls says you know i i took whatever you know taekwondo or something or another lessons Mm -hmm. and and uh casey's attitude is you know suburban martial arts training that you know that's a joke yeah and she and she's right they are fully unprepared the other two the other two are completely unprepared Absolutely. And she is a little prepared. Right. And she even has a line that I thought was just so insightful. Like somebody, and again, we find out why, but you know, somebody who's had Casey's life experiences, I think is capable of saying these exact words. She warns off the other girl. She says, look, we don't even know what this is yet. And it's like (laughs) that fact is enough to send the other two girls into a panic. But that same fact is enough to get Casey to pull back. Let's just do some thinking here. Let's observe the situation a little bit more. We may find an opening. You know, the fact that they don't know what they're dealing with produces two completely different reactions. And, you know, if, you know, if you're watching this for the first time, it, it doesn't really scan at first that a teenage girl would have this much self-awareness. 
except it eventually makes absolutely perfect sense that she understands. She knows what she doesn't know. Yeah, and there, you know, there are a couple streams happening for Casey. You know, one slowly, to some extent, they both slowly get revealed. But one of the things that that we start to see is these flashbacks of her hunting as a child. We're starting; we get that early on, and so you do get the idea that she has she has hunted, she has possibly taken life, animal life. You know, certainly that is part of her family culture. Uh, to be predator and not yeah. be prey. So, you know, obviously I mean, it's at, at this point, all that is, is pretty blunt symbolism that, you know, more, more gets added onto that. Mm-hmm. But again, that that's one of the ways that she's different from the other two. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and the other thing that she says, and you kind of touched upon this before, one of them even mentioned, you know, the Taekwondo lessons. And she's like at the King of Prussia mall. I mean, look, <laughs> You, her point, I forget her exact words, but it's like, her point is, you know, you're thinking of this as an orderly sequence of events. Mm -hmm. The minute you start this, you don't know what the end of it is. Maybe you'll win, but then how do you get out? Maybe you'll lose. And if you lose, what's he going to do to you? Is he going to kill you right away? Or, and she's, she's not, she's not saying all of that, but her point is to basically introduce the insane amount of of unknowns, the uh, the number of variables that are going on with this. They don't know where they are. They don't know who they're up against. They don't know uh, if, if this person has any accomplices, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The number of things they don't know is off the scale. And so um, it's just incredibly insightful writing. And at the same time, good dialogue. You know, I could picture some suburban teenager thinking that well, I've done, I, I've had this, you know, these lessons. And so maybe that equips me to do X, Y, or Z. No, it doesn't. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> or or rather it may not, it may, but it may not work that way. And so um, it's just basically a very different, um, very different, very major differences of opinion in terms of how best to proceed. But that doesn't mean that Casey doesn't have useful information to offer, mm-hmm. all right? Again, something that seems like it came out of left field that seems omitted from this this synopsis is Dennis comes into the room and it's not entire, at least to start with, it's not completely clear what he's doing, but he's basically sizing the different girls up and then he makes the choice of which one he wants. And Marsha basically goes into a panic. And so... Casey is kind of reading between the lines here and has some idea where this might be going. And so she gives Marsha information. I'm not going to say that saved Marsha's life, but definitely saved Marsha from something else, perhaps. She tells Marsha basically to go to the bathroom on herself. Just pee on yourself. And it's like, I remember the first time watching this, it was, okay, that's a... How would you pause? I mean, I'm, you know, the instant she says it, I guess I can see where that would probably work. But why would you think? Because supposedly Casey got caught off. She was surprised by this. She was taken. She was taken off guard by it. Why would you instantly think this is what you should do? And it turns out there's a very good reason why this yep. would be the first thing out of Casey's mouth in terms of useful, practical advice. As Weird as it is, but we're way past the weird level. <laughs> I mean, it, it, and there is a lot of plot and a lot of character 
a lot of script type of things to talk about in here. But I do want to mention, obviously, James McAvoy gets a ton of praise for his role. And I don't know enough about acting, you know, to really to really judge or to describe. But obviously, he has the biggest role. He has the showiest role as well. Mm-hmm. But man, Anya Taylor Joy is impressive. Yeah, she is uh, almost equally impressive. It's not quite a two-hander, but it's close. I mean, she is almost. Uh, she might have as much screen time as McAvoy does, and. Um, if you want to be technical, her one character probably has more because he's playing however many yeah. versions of himself he, as he is. And obviously he has a showy role. You know, you can see him acting. Yeah. Um, but she is really good as well. She is. And she has the thing about it is, um, again, I don't have the same eye for acting that other people do. I'm a writing guy. So, you know, when some people talk about the meaning and significance of cinematography, I don't have the same eh, gift for that or acting performance or even in a certain in a certain way effects. But writing. Yeah, I I think that's really more my strength. But what I do like about Anya Taylor-Joy's performance here is that it is anything but one note. And when you think about it, I mean, I guess if somebody says, hey, Magnus, you have to be in this movie where you get kidnapped by this freaking weirdo. And, and it's like, OK, well, I'm going to be playing every scene scared out of my mind. And she doesn't do that. There are times when she's wise in a in a way that just breaks your heart when you realize why she's so wise, why she has such practical advice. She's uh, scared out of her mind at certain times. She's confident at times. She's um she's verging on panic. I mean, it's never just one thing. There are times when she's very strong and determined and, um, it's, you're, you're right. This is a much more subtle performance than anything, uh, McAvoy does. Although we will circle back to this. There is one amazing scene for sure. (laughs) What am I saying? A lot of amazing scenes, but one in particular really stands out for me. Um, but we'll get to that later. Um, but you know, I, I you, just wanted to mention the acting just in case that gets swept away in the rest of our conversation. It would have. I wouldn't have brought it up, so I'm glad that you did. So, but you're right. This is an an incredibly nuanced, layered, and just very mature performance from her. And uh, in a certain way, this kind of is her movie, depending on how you look at it. And um, it's yeah, amazingly good work. So. Um, now, before we shift gears here, do you, you got any parting shots on that? No. All right, cool. All right, um, but, but, but where did I drop off here? Uh, speaking of... Okay, so... Um, they recognize his DID, and Claire attempts to use, uh, use this to escape, but is caught by Dennis and separated from the others. <sighs> yeah, there's some plot stuff we could get into, but, I mean, honestly, we've touched on most of the acting stuff so we can move on uh kevin continues going to work and attending um appointments with dr fletcher fletcher soon realizes that uh dennis has displaced barry as the dominant personality that's what the synopsis says but i don't know if i buy that not sure yeah uh but either way yeah i I know that there's at one point that i'm just gonna say kevin 
Kevin is trying to deceive her as to who's in charge. And I get the feeling that she's just going along with it at one point is is uncertain. So I'm 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 not as certain as the synopsis is, at least at least this early in the movie. I'm not sure. Right. That and that, that that statement of her certainty is correct. Right. And I and I'm actually kind of right there with you, but there are three major meetings between Kevin and uh, Dr. Fletcher in her office. There are three sessions that, that, that we're privy to. And in the first one, I get the idea that she she generally buys it. Uh, this is a dentist. He says he's Barry. And she pretty much rolls with that. You know, maybe she's got a few reluctances, but she rolls with it. It's in the second meeting that I think she starts, that her danger sense starts going off here a little bit. Yep. This is not the same guy that I've talked to so much. And it's really in the third meeting that, well, we'll get to that when we get to that, because there's, an again, another amazing McAvoy moment in their third session that I want to I save for when we get there. But uh, all of this is to say that, yes, I, I do agree with you, that um, she, she is a, she, uh, she's never very far away from suspecting the truth. And then there comes a point when she is certain of it. And... Um, Honestly, I mean, when you think about it, I guess this her name, I would know it if I heard it, but this actress, she, even she has a, kind of a thankless oh, yeah. role, even though this is pretty complicated stuff herself when you think about it. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, it's revealed that when Kevin was a child, his father left on a train one day, a train, and never returned. As dun, he grew dun, up... <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> and there's some definite significance to that, but that is a spoiler. Um, As he grew up, Kevin was abused and terrorized by his mother, who suffered from an obsessive compulsive disorder. And again, I think that's, I don't know if that's ever said in the movie. Yeah, I don't know. It's what develops in him. She may have just just had a mean streak. Yeah, and I, I, what I took from this. Perfectionist and other things. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. Um, Again, it's all in how you look at it. It's not explicit, but you know what, maybe, well, Maybe. Um, He, meaning Kevin, later experiences an awkward uh, incident later in life where two teenage girls uh, force Kevin, and I'm not sure if this is Kevin that this happened to or Dennis or what, but uh, they force Kevin uh, to touch their breasts, which Fletcher believes triggered Dennis to take over. And the scene where, where Dennis and Fletcher talk about that the dialogue isn't especially specific, like who did this happen to? It, it It's clear that this royally torqued Dennis off, as I think it would anybody. But Dennis, I think, especially took this in a way far more personally than a lot of other people probably would. Whereas you and I, Professor, I think we would be annoyed by that, offended by that. I get the idea Dennis was like irrationally, like over the top angry about what happened. Now, if that happened to him or to Kevin, or whoever, Dennis was clearly the one who took offense. Does that seem Does that seem reasonable, yeah. Okay. So, I don't know. Um, You're right. The more I read of the synopsis, the more I think this is just weak sauce, but whatever. It's what we got. Uh, So, yeah, Marsha attempts to escape, because this is such a logical synopsis. Uh, Marsha attempts to escape, but is caught by Patricia and separated from Casey. Casey befriends Hedwig, another of Kevin's alters, that is a nine-year-old boy. 
can we stop here for a minute? Because a lot of stuff has happened. Yeah. <laughs> just just plot wise between between here, you know, we've gone from the three girls being in the same room to one of them being separated out, which might probably be twenty five minutes later in the movie is when the third one yeah. gets um gets singled out. And I and and I guess this is a little bit of what was mentioned uh, uh what was mentioned earlier in the synopsis is happening here mm-hmm. where Hedwig on their first meeting says we get this idea of he is on the move. He's done awful things or awful things will happen to you. Um, the word food has been used a couple of times to describe the girls. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's, that's a little bit of, um, and, and we're also missing a little bit, I think, skimming through here, we 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 don't get a feel for the doctor, Doctor Fletcher, and her. You know, she carries a lot of the um, a lot of the the exposition. Yeah. And part of it is through speaking with colleagues. Um, doing, we see her doing a presentation at an academic uh, and professional conference that actually doesn't. There's a very subtle bit in there but, uh, before that where uh, she was going to be able to do a solo presentation of her findings about how amazing what is happening inside of Kevin. And, you know, that panel gets turned down and she does, she is able to be, at, you know, as part of a panel presentation. We know this if you've gone to Comic-Cons, right? There's a difference right. between the one person making the presentation and and you know, an hour split among six or seven people. And, uh, and so there's a, you know, and, and, and that is, believe me, a legitimate, interesting uh, academic and professional distinction. You know, she is being downgraded a little bit within her field because of how strongly she feels something is happening inside of Kevin. Well, and there are actually uh, two issues going on there that I just want to go ahead and tackle right now, since we're on the subject. Um, number one, um, there's a lot of uh, debate among professionals as to, and this is not just in the film. I mean, this is real life too. Yeah. There's a lot of debate among, you know, professionals, educated people, people that know what they're talking about. Considerable debate as to whether or not DID is even real. There's one school of thought that says that it is. It is very often triggered by. Uh, different kinds of trauma, typically in uh, early childhood. And it is kind of sort of similar to what we see in this movie. Mm. Now, I do think there are some artistic and creative uh, licenses being taken, specifically with alters changing clothes. And my justification for that is this is a mental disorder that has to, in some way or another, be externalized so that these different alters are recognizable to the viewer. And so because of that, I'm willing to look the other way that um, it's a matter of uh, personal preference for Hedwig that he's always wearing um, sort of athletic type of uh, clothes and and uh, that sort of thing. Whereas Patricia, when she has a chance to control her wardrobe, she tends to wear, again, almost like these kind of American frontier type of uh, dresses that go all the way up to her throat. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, Dennis, he has to wear very clean, very uh, dark uh, colored clothes um, with a, a, a button-up shirt and nice slacks that are always pressed. And um, 
it's an externalization of these characters um personality so that we know who's on screen i don't think it actually works that way in real life right and and if and and if you take the did is a thing stance then you still have the science fiction extrapolation that right. the movie does which is uh and and she does use words like powers or that they are more capable at times. And one of the ways it's described is the ability to change body chemistry with one's thoughts. Yes. And I just happened to have been reading some metamorpho comic books recently. And that's the, I was you know, trying to put it in some sort of comic book context. And maybe that's the closest, maybe a few others, but, you know, it's sort of being able to, um, you know, manifest. It's not exactly stretching. It's not elongated or Mr. Fantastic. It's not that or you know, Beast Boy or it's not that sort. But Metamorpho's kind of close. Um, you know, some others you could. You know, it's an obvious. It's, there's you know, there's not a one to one, but it's you know, you could you you see hints of that power uh, yeah. in in comic books. Yeah, and um, you know, in terms of the body chemistry thing, yeah. Uh, Metamorpho probably is about as well, maybe Mr. Fear, but that's really stretching. Yeah, right. Really, really stretching. Um, in terms of like the beast, I was kind of torn between Spider Man, the Hulk, and Doomsday, but I, I don't know. Again, yeah, it's all yeah, on how you look yeah, at get, it. So, sure. um, and I mean specifically the beast mm-hmm. alter, not right. the body chemistry thing, but right. um, anyway. Right. Um, there is another school of thought that says that there is no such thing as as uh, DID. There's considerable debate on the subject, and so the stand that I'm going to take on this is that people who seem like they're a lot smarter than me seem to have a lot of room for disagreement with one another. So whatever consensus they eventually arrive at is that's enough for me, at least for the purposes of this movie. I'm willing to buy into the at least the potential existence of something like DID um, and maybe that's about as far into it as I should go but the other thing that I wanted to mention is that there comes a point when we we get we get we get to a point with Dr. Fletcher where I at least kind of turn on her and one of the things that I kind of started asking myself as, especially during this most recent rewatch that I did uh, last night. Yes, she does want to help Kevin. Yes, she does want to make sure that he can live, that he can live as normal and orderly and functional a life as he possibly can. She does want to do her job as a therapist and I'm not going to take that away from her. But especially when it comes to the conference, I sometimes get the idea that Dr. Fletcher is not necessarily on the side of the angels. Um, she even has dialogue. She is on the side of Dr. Fletcher. Yeah. As well as Kevin, perhaps. Right. And if, yeah, I get the idea that where Fletcher's agenda overlaps with what's good for Kevin, she's happy to do it. But I get the idea <laughs> that she's not necessarily out with his best interests in mind at all times. And that becomes especially clear, you know, when she finds herself, it's almost like she's trying to use Kevin to prove a pet theory of hers rather than 
do whatever is is uh, best for Kevin. There are times when doing what's best for Kevin may very well do a lot to advance Fletcher's career. There may be times though where if just for the sake of argument, let's say that Fletcher de devises some kind of relaxation uh, treatment that permanently deletes every single one of uh, Kevin's alters, never to be seen or heard from again. Kevin will be able to live 100% a DID-free life. I question that she would give that to him. I don't know that she yeah. would. If she had the cure, so to speak, it's reasonable to debate one way or the other, would she share that? And, you know, when you're first watching the movie and you're learning all, all of these things and you're absorbing the characters and everything, you don't necessarily have reason to question it. But as as things move on, there does come a point, I think, again, where Fletcher does kind of redeem herself a little bit. But especially on this most recent rewatch, re she was way more conflicted about some things than I think she really should have been. That's just me. Interesting. So. Um, I, I would add at this point too, again, I'm, I'm looking at my notes. A lot of time is passing that that's not being commented on in the synopsis. So I, I did want to mention also that during this time, and this is a horror trope, though it is completely turned on its heads, and that is our our uh, teenage girls get progressively less and less clothed. Although it's because their clothes get dirty. You know, it's you've. Yeah. You've got a chrome on your sweater. You you tried to escape. He's not mad about that. But you got dirt on your shirt. What were you thinking? And you know, in in uh, in Casey's case, she is wearing a lot of layers, which actually comes in handy. And that that's actually is they do hang a lantern on that. That is actually commented upon, and there is actually a plot reason for that. Yes. Um, so it is again. It is this weird horror trope. But it's still treated. It's a very PG thirteen. It that that part is treated in a PG thirteen appropriate way. Yes, it is. So and it, it and it is a strange juxtaposition. Yeah. Well, and like the thing is, the PG thirteen rating for this movie, when you think about how much you don't see or how much you don't hear, yeah. Um, it really is. Uh, it it comes down to the language because they do drop a few f bombs. Um, and I think that's where the PG-13 rating comes from, because content-wise, in terms of, like, if you catch my meaning, like, graphic content, there really isn't any in this movie. And so it's really because of strong language. Now, a lot is implied. A lot, believe me, is implied. And you could but, have easily... You, the R-rated version of this would be very easy to make. Oh, yeah. And I have no interest in seeing it. No, so, you no. Know. I, that's, that's what I'm saying. That's what's... It, it, interesting the choices that were made to keep it to PG-13. Yeah, and uh, a lot of restraint. And you know what, since we're on this subject, you know, to hell with it. I respect Knight for making a PG-13 version of this movie, because it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to think of, uh, think of a few candidates, in fact. Lesser filmmakers that would have wanted to go, if you catch my sure, meaning, sure. a little bit more graphic. And I'm... I'm one of those people that when it comes to scary movies, I like the suspense and I like the thrills and all that. I don't really like the gore. A little bit of blood, that's one thing, but like like graphic 
violence and gore and stuff like that, I just don't really get into as much. As you can imagine, I hate the Saw movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is, you know, the old, maybe it's just, you know, a matter of perspective. You know, um, this is something that I don't remember being exposed to a whole lot when I was a kid. So maybe I've always had opposition to seeing... Um, you know, uh, sexual abuse or rape or anything like that. I've always had it. And it's not until adulthood that it had a chance to reveal itself, or it could be just the fact that I'm married. I have a stepdaughter and I shudder to think what I would do to somebody if, you know, I mean, like I'm, there are times like, you know, you, this is not hyperbole. Like I really am afraid. Like what would I do? You know, there's a lot to be said for forgiveness and letting things go and and all of that you know vengeance is not ours to take those are wonderful platitudes but in the moment yeah and so seeing you know somebody who's not much older than my stepdaughter sure and knowing the kind of life that number one that she's had growing up and then number two what she could for all she knows what she or and when i'm first watching this what she could be facing I wouldn't want to see a, an R-rated version of that stuff. I just, I don't need to see it. You know, yeah, it would, yeah. people kind of, even I do it, you know, they kind of throw around the term triggering, you know, and I do it mostly for ironic and comedic effect. But that is kind of a red line for me. It's one of the reasons why it's, I, I saw the original Death Wish once. I don't need to see it again. Whereas the remake, mm-hmm. some people would say the remake is a lesser film, but you know what? The remake doesn't have that one scene in it it gets implied or something gets implied, but you don't see graphic. Right. If you know what I mean. And I don't, I don't know. I, I'm not trying to beat this to death, but it's just, you know, we all, again, we're all products of our lives and I don't know where you're coming from on this. I've got a really low, I, I just, I can't handle stuff like that. You know, I can't. Yeah. So yeah. the only other thing sort of plot quote unquote wise, or maybe worth mentioning is that in here is where we get uh, Knight's cameo. And he is actually credited as Jai, comma, Hooters fan. <laughs> um, that is about half of what he talks about in his minute scene when he's talking to the doctor and they're reviewing, what, the security cam footage to, 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 to see exactly what's happening with uh, Dennis and or Barry. You know, <laughs> and, and again, I mean, we're all, again, we're all products of, of our life experiences. I one time worked in an office where Hooters was one of the most uh, popular restaurants to go to. <laughs> and so I've spent a fair amount of time. And honestly, can I, can I just tell you something? I'm a lot more and ashamed. So, and, 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 and you've worked in the tech field. So you, yeah. you know, that guy. <laughs> yeah, I do. And, um, you know, uh, actually, you know what, I, I, we can even go a step beyond that. Um, when I was in, uh, uh, when I was actually in tech, I worked in a, um, uh, most recently at a web hosting company located here in Houston and it was a, um, they had a vending machine. It was a, a monster, <clears throat> excuse me, monster energy drink. That is the official energy drink. That's the official vending machine. That's what you get. Red Bull never, they never really made peace with that. They know IT, they know who we are, they know what we like to drink. They want a piece of that. And so their way, if I'm lying, I'm dying. This is something that really did happen more than once, I might add. Red Bull, the company, would send girls, and you've seen them, those little tube tops and the booty shorts and all that. We're talking like Smokey the Barely Legal here, 
up to the office and they would give us like free Red Bull. And the idea was, hey, have you guys changed your mind yet? You want to get rid of Monster? Uh, you changed your mind. And it's like, you know, you can send anybody you want up there to, to give us free Red Bull. Why are you sending these girls who look like they're barely out of high school and they're wearing almost nothing? And it's like, what are you really offering here? You know, and it is, it was, and like for me, I mean, here I was, I was in, well, we'll say I was in my thirties and it's like, I, okay, number one, I'm committed to somebody. Number two, I've got a stepdaughter. It's like, I, I, I can't do this guys. Okay. But you know, I don't know. It's the whole thing is just kind of very odd and very strange. And it just was not, there were a million, there were a million reasons why that was an uncomfortable work environment that was just <laughs> that was just one so but you know like i say the um actually you know we've we've, we've gone into that anyway so what were you saying now uh, just that uh you know that's that's where we see knight's cameo and that yeah. there's also a jo a little uh jab at him getting a little older or at least she says you're getting a little thicker on the middle yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, he, I mean, he's in all of his movies. We've seen it. Yeah, it's yes, he happened is. to all of us watching too. <laughs> um, and the thing about about that character is, uh, we've—it's not a huge deal, but it is nevertheless spoiling ahead. There is one more thing we find out about him that really makes uh, Unbreakable and Split more enjoyable, shall we say. Well, it, it, we'll we'll get to it in the in, in, in we'll get to it in the future. Let's just leave it there. But yeah, that it is kind of a neat little moment. So um, now moving, where did I even drop? Oh yeah, here we go. Um, so Marsha attempts to escape and is caught. Oh yeah, yeah. No, there was there was actually a note um, that I wanted to uh, go through here. Uh, Marsha attempts to escape but is caught by Patricia and separated from Casey. Now. Up to this point in the movie, um, we, we see Dennis's uh, dark side. Um, Hedwig's dark side is implied. And I would say that Patricia's dark side, it's it's really implied, but you don't really see anything. You know, that's where this changes. Uh, Patricia turns a knife on, on Marsha. Now, up to this point, she was sort of like in customer service mode a little bit. <laughs> right. Um, trying to make their incarceration as pleasant and enjoyable as she possibly could and all that here. She turns a knife on somebody. She's not kidding around anymore. You know, now she still has the, you know, that um, chipper and encouraging Mary Poppins voice going, but don't kid yourself. This is a knife, bro, that she's got uh, pointed up to that girl's uh, uh, chest. And this is, I don't know why, but sometimes it's the little, Sometimes it's the dog, but sometimes it's the little <laughs> things um, that really drive home the malevolence or the character or, or, or just whatever the character, right? That really give you the insight into the character. And in this case, I guess I needed to see her turn a knife on Marsha to really understand. No, it's not. It's not that she's not violent. She is capable of violence. You know, um, she's not somebody who's caught in a bad situation. Patricia is here because she chooses to be. She's in my book, she is just as guilty as Dennis. 
just as guilty as the beast. She chose to be here. And it took that scene for me to really get that. I don't know why. I hate to think what that says about me, but that's what it took. So I don't know if that moment mattered at all to you, but that was definitely something I wanted to make a point of mentioning. So um, another another uh, bit of business here, Casey befriends Hedwig, which is to say another of Kevin's personalities, uh, perpetually a nine-year-old boy who reveals himself to have, to have the ability to take control of the light whenever he wants. Casey convinces Hedwig to let her out of her cell to see his bedroom, believing that there might be a means of escape through his window. Hedwig has described in that uh, that Hedwig has, has described in that room, but she finds it's only a drawing of a window. Now we get a little uh, moment, just a little bit of business here with um, with Hedwig, where he he uh, dan- he thinks he he took Casey to his room to dance with her, or to dance for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was actually trying to uh, case the joint and see if there's a way to escape. Again, Casey is thinking strategically. Uh, Hedwig is the one that she can manipulate, so he's the one that she makes into a target. And this what, is again, this is part of where her, her hunting background comes in, which is it's patient and strategic. And I like that. It, um, but it's also a showcase for more of, uh, James McAvoy's acting as he's, uh, crazy dancing for, uh, for, uh, Casey blink and you miss it, but it is in there. He stops for just a moment and flashes her a smile before he goes back to dancing. <laughs> and it's just such a nine-year-old showboat thing to do because Casey even puts a, puts a label on it. But the, the way that Hedwig has kind of mentally categorized his relationship with Casey is she's kind of like his babysitter and he has a crush on her. Yes. And... He's trying to find a, and this is just such a guy thing to do. You like a girl, you will find a way to show off for when you're that young and that immature. And this is the best opening that Hedwig could think of, you know? And I like the fact that, you know, he takes that little moment to pause and smile at her. It It's kind of, it's almost stating the obvious to say that McAvoy had his, thinking cap on for every single one of his scenes in this movie. There's always some extra little flourish that he puts in that really sells the character. And for me, that moment in the dance scene is, is just that smile, mm-hmm. that kind of show off. He smile that he, that he flashes at a uh, Casey. It's like, he has no idea that he's the one that's being played here <laughs> until he kind of does. Now this is one where I don't want to hear from night about because yeah. I hope that Knight and McAvoy worked out this dance scene, but they didn't practice it with Taylor Joy there because he gets <laughs> uncomfortably close. It is weird. And her reaction I mean, it may have been awesome acting. It may have been the totally first weird. time she's witnessed this performance. <laughs> yeah. Because it is uncomfortably close at points. It is weird. It is uncomfortable. It, it is what a nine-year-old would think is cool, <laughs> you know. Perhaps, yeah. you know. It, 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 you know, I, again, I, I sort of hope <laughs> that this was really was her first time seeing that particular performance. It, it certainly comes across that way, right? Yeah. Well, and you know, my last little bit of business for uh, for that for that little sequence there is. Um, 
I remember being nine years old and I remember interacting with, uh, you know, teenage girls on a semi-regular basis. I'll tell this story someday um, in full, but one of the nine-year-old girls for whom I found myself showing off is uh, Natalie Maines, the uh, lead singer of the Dixie Chicks, uh, or she would become the lead singer of the yes. Dixie Chicks. She was not then, but, you know, anyway. Um, but it's just like, it wasn't dancing, but it was it was other things, and especially for Natalie Maines, it was something else. And um, uh, it just seems so authentic to me, you know. And um, anyway, I just I I, I dig I, that scene. <laughs> I also also liked we get a couple hints here that in Hedwig's room, lots of stuffed animals, lots of animal toys. Lots of animal oh. drawings we hadn't mentioned before, but uh, in the sessions with the doctor, would that be Barry? Is showing his fashion, his fashion drawings? Oh no, it's Dennis. That Dennis, to Dennis, be Barry. Right. Yes. Yes. Thank you. So we get two of the personalities at least that have we would say very different artistic skill levels. Yes, we. Yes, we do. Yes. But that like to draw. And one of them is a, um, it's like it's an impression of the beast, I guess. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, or at least that's what I assume it oh, is. Oh, yes, absolutely. And the thing about it is, I mean, we don't really get a sense of these characters. We don't get a complete sense of these characters' self-image. What does Patricia think she looks like? Well, whatever it is, it's not Kevin. Right. What does Hedwig think he looks like? Well, whatever it is, it ain't Kevin, you know? And this is really one of the few times, or, or even Dennis, I get the idea that Dennis, he has to, he has to meet um, Kevin's uh, physical measurements and his, his weight and all that. But Dennis is not James McAvoy's size. Dennis is like 6'6". He's a big, beefy, broad shoulder. He's a big guy physically big guy and but he's not because he's actually kevin and kevin is not a big guy but dennis is if that makes sense like the self-image that's right and this is the closest we get maybe the closest we can get to any kind of portrait of the beast and it's this shadowy demonic looking monster that's at once it doesn't really reveal anything about the beast and yet at the same time arguably says everything you know mm -hmm. so I don't, it's all in how you look at it. But uh, either way, this is a great scene. And that's a good catch, by the way, the stuffed animals and whatnot. Uh, good catch on your part. So I would say uh, the first time I watched the movie, I had no idea where they were. We haven't mentioned it yet. But, you know, there's some clues there. Yeah, well, I all mean, we know I is, is it, I mean, it's a huge space. It's a huge underground space um, with lockers, with cages. Okay, it made sense after they told me. But that was a there was a clue there. There is. Um yeah, a lot of clues. And again, this we 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 said we we said this quite a lot I think in the unbreakable episode, but it it really is worth repeating here. At no time ever in this entire movie, no time night never lies to the to the audience. He may, there are times when he may not tell you everything. There are actually, there are times when he literally does tell you everything. He tells you the, the truth straight to your face and you don't believe it, but there is no dishonesty. And I, 
I, I guess what I appreciate, you know, I'm not here to to say that every single one of Knight's movies is Grand Slam, knock it out of the park, home run. But I some but especially considering the way that the that sort of middle part of his career unfolded, I fear that he may not get the full due he deserves as an artist. And um especially in this movie, he never lies. Ever. So anyway. Moving right along, um, <clears throat> Casey takes a walkie-talkie from Hedwig and uses it to call for help. She reaches a uh, somebody by the name of uh, Vince, um, uh, but he believes that it's a prank. And I can only assume that Vince, well, he gets fired, I have to believe. <laughs> anyway, uh, Patricia takes over and subdues Casey, taking the, the uh, walkie-talkie um, away, away from Hedwig. Then we get a huge jump. This is a huge jump cut in the uh, synopsis here. Fletcher visits Kevin's home where he reveals that he has, in fact, met the Beast in spite of the fact that he did not. Actually, you know what? We're going to circle back to that in just a moment because we, we at, missed it. At this point, they also just going to say the hunting family scenes come to an end. Yeah. So it might be worth revealing. Well, actually, before we get what, into that, because that's what some, we've ended at of... with Casey or or. Or where were you going? Um, well, and we, we can go into that. But first, just one one quick thing I want to do. Uh, earlier, I said that there were three sessions in Fletcher's office that we're privy to during this film. And basically, Fletcher becomes more and more suspicious that she's not talking to Barry. She's talking to Dennis. And in the third, the third session, I want to say this is um, maybe about an hour or so into the, or maybe a little bit more, I forget. But uh, either way, it's the third session for certain. There comes a point when Fletcher calls a spade a spade and she calls him out. So at the moment that Dennis drops the pretense, this is just a phenomenal, just bit of acting that, that he does, that he does in that uh, third meeting with, with Fletcher. He has a very subtle transition. He's kind of uh, leaning over to his right uh, and he's Dennis pretending to be Barry. He shifts his weight over to his left, and now he's not Dennis pretending to be Barry. He's just Dennis. And when yes. he does it, his posture, his expression—it's almost like even the shape of his uh, of his head even seems to change a little bit. It's subtle, but the cumulative effect is—it's impossible to miss. But the, the the tiny little details that he puts into that that little transition. This is, I mean, this is an amazing piece of acting. This is, this is incredible. And another little bit of business there is that at the moment that Dennis drops the pretense, the camera, it begins this really slow and subtle sort of pullback from the character as though the camera, even the camera is a little <laughs> freaked out by Dennis at this point. Like anyone I think would just kind of sit back in their chair. It's like, whoa, what the hell? And... This is the moment where if it wasn't clear before, it should be clear now. I think it's kind of obvious that Fletcher is maybe, a, like I said, a little bit more concerned with her career and all of that. And the moment that the penny dropped for me on the rewatch with this is there are some, not everything, but some bits of dialogue that are virtually interchangeable with Dr. Fletcher and the Beast. Mm, yeah. And... Her wow. mm -hmm. her position seems to be that trauma has led to this. 
And that's kind of, we'll get more into it when we get into it, but that's kind of the beast's philosophy too. And that's the moment, like when you have a supporting character who's more or less agreeing with the undisputed villain of the piece, <laughs> yeah. what am I supposed to think now? now um, she has, no, she's asked the right questions, you know, early on. I mean, she's asked a couple of times, has something happened? Did something happen? And I guess it's maybe in the last scene uh, with him where he lives. And she asks, she says, I know you want to tell me something. Yeah. So she's sensing something. Uh, but like you said, uh, again, I've, she is double dealing with herself as well as, you know, she, she has some conflicting uh, yeah. priorities as well. I absolutely agree. Now, uh, business with with Casey. Um, basically, it, it comes out that through one fashion or another, this is not part of the synopsis, you understand. I'm just kind yes. of extemporizing here. Through one fashion or, or another, presumably a heart attack, Casey's father has passed away. But even before that, it is revealed that Casey, uh, Casey's uncle has has been molesting her. And that, at least for me, tends to go a pretty long way toward explaining how it is that, yes. Ca that Casey has such amazing survival instincts, not from her hunting experiences, but from surviving her own yes. childhood. Yes. And this because is when... The, 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 the sense is this was happening when she would have been five, six, seven, eight. That's a, mm -hmm. maybe a, around the time that the father died as well. Maybe, you know, and she's been living with the uncle since then. Yeah. So this, this started while the father was alive. And then she, after he dies, she goes to live with her abuser. Yeah. For another and decade plus. Sounds about right. Yeah. I mean, if she's about six or seven at the time, yeah, sounds about right. I mean, the, one of the one of the comments I wrote down here is Dennis is actually nicer, in that you know he as we, as we said he lets her keep most of her clothes on. Yeah, and yeah, it's you know the villain of the piece is the Beast, but in a weird kind of way, isn't the villain of the piece her uncle? Mm -hmm. And this is really this is the Beast is the immediate antagonist. Ultimately, it's her uncle that Casey has to metaphorically slay. Having said that, there was a point in Casey's childhood when she was tempted to literally slay uh, her uncle. And in the end, she didn't have the nerve to pull the trigger. But before credits roll in this movie, she's going to finally pluck up the courage to pull the trigger twice, in fact, and um, or arguably three times. It's all in how you look at it. But um, twice for sure, she pulls the trigger. And this is... Um, this is one of those moments where I, I kind of want to be a little bit delicate in how I phrase this, because what we're talking about is trauma that people have to live with in the real world every single day. Yes. And so I want to be sensitive to that. This is still a work of creative fiction. And so there is analysis here that, you know, the actual real world clinical implications for this, you know, I, I'm not trying to be a, a jerk. 
I have to evaluate this movie as a movie and not as a, a horrible tragedy that real people have had to live with. So just all of you keep that in mind. There, This is really the first time that you can start seeing some real connective tissue that exists between Casey and Kevin. First off, Kevin Crumb, his, uh, his first name begins with K, his last name begins with C. He's kind of a KC himself in more ways than one. Um, I might not have even noticed that, except I dated a girl when I was in my 20s. Uh, her initials were KC, and there came a point when I just referred to her as <laughs> Casey. Um, not my friend, whose name actually was Casey. This is yet somebody else. But um, anyway, but it's almost, in a certain sense, from, I guess, a literary standpoint, you could consider Casey and Kevin to be sort of variations on the exact, or, or maybe not even variations. Maybe they are the same exact character. And they both have, you know, they've got a similar name. They have a similar background. And Is any mention made of her mother? No. I, is never, she already dead at that point? I What I took from it is that her mother died at some undetermined time yeah. in Casey's yeah. early childhood. Er, er, early, yeah. yeah. And so she was just never in the picture. And so... So, yeah. I, so I, that adds a layer of similarity with Kevin. Yeah. One parent and, gone, one one parent... Or, uh, one... Uh, and an abuser. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the, uh, you know, and there is the, you know, uh, an abusive family member having lost one parent, right. um, you know, at an early age, et cetera. You know, there are a lot of similarities. And so there comes a point, and again, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. I'll talk more about this when we get there. But there comes a point when Casey shows a certain kind of regard for Kevin I don't think the significance, the similarity in their backstories, I don't think that's lost on her. And that could motivate some of her, some of the actions that she takes, at least, mm. or doesn't take, or some of the words that she says right. or doesn't say. And um, anyway, so I've tried to be as tasteful and restrained with this as I possibly can. Um, but any hate mail, send it to Pro Professor Allen. So anyway, <laughs> so... Uh, uh, Fletcher uh, visits Kevin's home where he reveals that he has, in fact, met the Beast and actuality a yet-to-manifest 24th personality. Realizing that Dennis may have abducted the three missing girls to serve as a sacrifice to the Beast, and I'm going to put a pause on that and say I don't think that necessarily that's where Fletcher... I think she. I think Fletcher knows that something is up, but the idea that and it was those... Yeah, she finds one of the girls, but I don't. There's, I don't. Know if there's any connection between, yeah. I, I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. Um, this is just a horrible summary. I'm just gonna say it. My God, uh, whoever wrote this needs to get fired from their the free stuff they do on Wikipedia. <laughs> so anyway, realizing that Dennis may have abducted the girls, uh, serve as a sacrifice, etc. Fletcher feigns going to the bathroom, searches the home, and finds Claire. Dennis suddenly appears and sedates Fletcher and locks her up as well. Now we start getting into the nitty-gritty here. Uh, Dennis goes to a train station where he boards an empty train car, which allows the Beast to finally manifest and take over, giving Kevin, for lack of a better way to say it, superhuman abilities. Now, 
right here is where a lot of people in theory should have started drawing more straight lines between split and unbreakable. And I think this is one of those times when Knight kind of exploited his reputation a little bit uh, with the viewer. First off, who had ever even heard of a stealth sequel before Split? And number two, even if a stealth sequel had... years later? Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. And even if a stealth sequel ever had existed, when has Knight ever shown an interest in making a sequel to anything? And so here he is. He's outright telling you there's a train. It has a lot of significance to it. Here's somebody that has what appears to be superhuman abilities. Can you think of anything else this this might remind you of, guys? And yet, I don't think most people watching this movie for the first time, knowing nothing about it, I don't think most people would in, would instantly yeah. make that connection. What do you think? Not at all. And even you throw into the same city. Uh, but... Knight lives in Philadelphia. All those movies are in Philadelphia. That you know, so all of the again, all of these obvious things that are being laid out, you either say you you either don't notice, or if you notice and give them any thought, you dismiss them as something else. Yeah. So anyway, I just I really admire, especially when it comes to the Israel 177 trilogy. I just I really admire Knight as an artist. So uh anyway. Um Giving Kevin superhuman abilities. Fletcher writes Kevin's full name on a piece of paper before the beast arrives and kills her. Casey escapes from her cell only, only to find that the beast has already devoured Marsha and watches in horror as he devours Claire, too. Casey finds uh, Fletcher's body and the piece of paper. Uh, the beast approaches her, but she calls out Kevin's full name, bring, bringing Kevin forth. Upon learning of the situation and realizing that he's not been in control for two years, a horrified Kevin begs Casey to kill him with a shotgun that he has hidden. And now's a good time to put a pin back into this thing. Um, at this point, I don't think that Casey necessarily knows everything about the Beast, but I think she's put she's she's got enough pieces to realize that the two of them are not that different from one another. And so and, when and she she is she has watched some of those computer files. Exactly. Which and, which is of, of the videos of the twenty-three personalities. We only see here watching a couple of them. So yeah, she but may I have think, watched I, them all and, and has is starting to at least build a version of what has happened and is is sort of on the right track. Yeah. I think we're. I, I think what I at least inferred was that she did watch all of them. It's just that it's kind of boring cinema. If you sit there showing somebody watching a video, it's just like, what is yeah. that? You know. <laughs> so we get the flavor. We get a little, uh, just a sample of some of the other alters, and I think we're supposed to assume that she watched everything. And so she shows. I want to be careful. I would say that she's not friendly toward Kevin. But she's not instantly fearful, or for that matter, instantly hostile. You know, she's... she actually she actually takes this question seriously, which is, "What did I do? Did I hurt you?" She takes the question at face value and nods. Says yes. Yeah, and the there are certain things that happen in the future that if you don't have this crucial bit of information in the background. I'm going to be honest with you. It's kind of hard to believe. 
it's impossible for me to believe that Casey makes some of the decisions we see her make much later on mm. without this as the pivotal scene. This is the moment that sums it all up, where a certain connection gets formed that is completely impossible without this moment. So this has significance. The reason I'm being a pain in the neck about this, I want to draw you listeners' attention to this. It's going to get paid off again and again and again and again in the future. Remember this moment. So anyway, Kevin begs Casey to kill him with a shot. But, but just to, to, to comment on one thing we mentioned before. Sure. We see the terrible things that the Beast is doing to the other two girls for such a brief amount of time that it's a PG-13. We, we see the PG-13 version of, would it be cannibalism? Yeah. Or do we count the beast as human? You know, it's, it's, but it's the, but it's that, uh, it gets, it's so fast, so quick that it maintains the PG, it's the PG-13 version of that, which could easily, as we've said before, turned into a, a heavy R. You know, the oh, content yeah. in this movie could easily have been oh, not yeah. just R, but heavy R, easily. Yeah, very hard R. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I honestly, again, I just applaud the restraint. This is more yes. from the standpoint of gore and horror that I just, I don't need to see a whole lot of. I mean, one of my favorite uh, horror movies of, in fact, probably my favorite horror movie of all time is Halloween. And there's a lot of stab fall down in that movie <laughs> where you don't necessarily see, you know, the blood and the guts dripping out. And you, you just... You get the flavor of it. You know what happened. Let's move on. Because you know, that movie, in a weird kind of way, comparable to Split, it's not about the gore. It's about the the thrills and the suspense and, and all of that. And honestly, Split has far more characterization to it than Halloween. Let's be realistic, yeah. but still. Um, so anyway, this, meaning Kevin begging Casey to kill him, this prompts all 24 personalities to fight for control of the light and Hedwig is the victor. Now, before we move on, I, I know we keep pausing here, but I, again, I just want to draw attention to this. This is not my favorite McAvoy moment in the whole movie, but this is still really good that McAvoy, basically he has this really powerful and effective and rapid fire, just shifting of gears from one character to another, to another, to another, all, not all, I would say all of the alters that we've seen up to this point, and even a few that we haven't, um, or at least one or two that we haven't seen much of, even they get a look like Jade, for example, they get a tiny bit of screen time here. And the, to me, it's one thing to say, you know, uh, to write a bunch of dialogue down on a page and then give it to an actor. And then the actor says the lines, he has actual delivery. Every single one of these characters, they all have their own, um, they all have their own delivery. They all have their own personalities. Oh, yes. And I would say even like rhythms of speech, you wouldn't accent asides or rather accent aside. You would never confuse Patricia's uh, dialogue or her, her speaking style with Dennis. You know, Dennis is almost a little bit more mumbly, whereas Patricia, she has this very sharp and pronounced method of speaking where every single letter gets enunciated. Uh -huh. Whereas Dennis is a little bit more lazy with his enunciation. I can't even do an impression of it, but it's so much better in the hands of McAvoy, but it's 
when you notice it, you notice it, and you can never not notice it once you have noticed it. It's bravura acting. This is mm. this is a great scene in the film, and I I adore it. So uh, Casey is told that Kevin has been made to sleep far away by uh, ultimately this is Patricia who says that, and he won't awaken now even if he he uh, his name is called. Um, Hedwig gets control over to the undesirable personalities, which is to say Dennis and Patricia, so that nobody will ever make fun of them again, and they once again allow the beast to take hold. Casey retrieves the, the gun and the ammunition before escaping into an underground tunnel where she shoots the beast twice, like I said, she pulls the trigger twice, to no effect. Uh, she locks herself in a cage. This is actually after or before she shot the beast, but whatever, it's a goofy synopsis. She locks herself in a cage area whose bars the beast begins to pull apart. However, he sees faded self-harm scars across her body and considers Casey to be pure and more evolved due to her being broken, and so he spares her. And this is the moment, or one of the moments, that really makes this movie work for me. I mean, there's a horrible tragedy, or series of tragedies, really, in Casey's background. But what I like about this is that... Casey does not outsmart the beast. She does not overpower the beast. She doesn't anything the beast. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, basically, Casey locked herself in a cage and was basically going to make her last stand there with with the shotgun. And it was, again, I'm I'm trying to be sensitive here as I say this. It's dumb luck that allowed Casey to get out of this thing alive. It's not because she was smarter or faster or stronger or anything. You know, I, I would... I'll go out on a limb and say that, you know, her, her upbringing, you know, the hunting stuff, that probably kept her out of solitary confinement longer, and that probably prolonged her life. But ultimately, the beast let her go. She did right. not overpower uh, the beast, and I just respect that. You know, I mean, this is not to make light of Casey's suffering. I'm not trying to be a dick, no. like I say, but uh, this is— this is probably the only way she could have survived is if he decides not to kill her. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah. And, you know, as we, we talked about the, uh, the quantity of clothes that she was wearing and um, having ripped through at, in, 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 in this last in this last confrontation, there is a, a tearing away. That's how her. Her uh, her belly is revealed where the layers are where the the scars are. Um, so we get you know all of these layers have finally been removed, mm-hmm. and and that last layer is is ripped through. We're talking metaphorical as well as physical, obviously. Mm-hmm. And you know he sees that she's also been abused. Um, and pronounces that she's different from the rest of them. Her heart is pure. And the broken are better. The broken are more advanced. Yeah. And as you said, he lets her go. Because of a connection. And um, and we, we, we do have to go, but just to a second. Sure. You said it. You paused. We have to mention it again. He is bending steel bars. Yes. Um, something that is, at the very least, implausible. Knight is not lying to us, you know. 
Not <laughs> and, and and that is associated with comic books. It with is. A, with a particular character that you are quite fond of, as a matter yes, of fact. Yes. Yeah. I'm wearing those, uh, I'm wearing my Superman pajama pants right now, in fact. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, the, yeah. Shoot. You know, I, I love had a that insight, bit. by the way. I, I love that insight that he doesn't lie. Shyamalan doesn't lie. That I, I need to sit on that. That that's good. <laughs> well, it's, it's it's true. Um, this uh, God, there was a bit of business. It related to Casey being in the cage. He's pulling the bars. God, I don't even remember what it was now. And it's, it, well, the still... scene this the scene le- leading up to that where he is climbing on the wall. I mean, on the ceiling. Yeah. And as he goes, he's knocking out the light bulbs, the fluorescent yeah. bulbs above. To, as it, so it gets progressively darker as he is approaching her. It's mm, very yeah, no, incredibly cinematic. Yeah, very suspenseful. And, uh, you know, one of the more... I kind of like... <clears throat> I, that actually works on multiple levels that, you know, yeah, the beast is going to want to hunt in the dark. That works. But I also like the fact that it is the darkness literally encroaching upon yes. uh, Casey and time is running out. And... The when you know when he finally does, uh, when he finally does you know make his move and and try to force his way into you know into the cage, there's um again I mean I don't have the same appreciation for acting, but that doesn't mean I'm completely dumb about it either. There's a there's just this mania that the beast has in his eyes that the other characters just don't. You know, um, they're all in, in, you know, whatever point of view they're speaking from. It's all very uh, sincere, but there's a desperation on, you know, that the beast has on his face. He wants this so bad he can already taste it. And it's uh, again, it's just an incredible piece of acting that is easy to overlook. And I don't know if I'm ever going to recover my original train of thought. So we're just going to move right along and stop stalling for time here. Casey I is resting. I don't remember if it's right here, or if it is an earlier scene, where, um, as the the altars are talking among themselves, I guess they mention there's a sense of escalation in particular. They say next time it's going to take ten or twelve girls to satisfy him. That yeah. This is, that this is just the start. Yeah, I do remember that, and. It honestly, the, that that's actually one sequel I'm glad we didn't see. You know? <laughs> I'm I'm good. I'm good. We 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 we've got enough. You know. So, <laughs> but uh, Casey gets rescued and learns that she was being held at the Philadelphia Zoo, where Kevin had been an employee. Uh, when Casey's asked if she's ready to return home with her uncle, and this is more of a symbolic trigger pull. That I think we're supposed to, because it's not explicit in the movie, but I think, you know, even without knowing where things are going, I think we're supposed to infer just on the strength of what we've seen so far. Casey chooses that moment to uh, drop a dime on her uncle and finally start being honest with the police about what has happened to her and what she's been through. We don't we don't see that. We don't know that. We hope that. Yeah. And the look, the look that between she and the cop. Uh, female cop, and she seems to understand. I think the cop does. 
in, yeah. in her reaction. So I, I, I have hope that what you are saying happened. And the, the thing about it that, I mean, apart from the, you know, you know, justice being served, the part about it that kind of works for me is that it's easy to think that except for this experience, Casey may very well have gone the rest of her life suffering in silence. Mm. But, you know, there is the kind of Ripley effect of, okay, I'm not going to go through, like I say, like this kind of Ripley type of experience, you know, nearly die and let this son of a bitch get away with it. And so what I think the character dynamic here is, is that, you know, basically, you know, maybe I think that when she hears the beast say, you know, talking about her scars, she's obviously broken herself. She may not have even realized her own brokenness. And now it knowing that that's the one thing that allowed her to survive. I think it would, to me, it, it makes all the sense in the world that she would say, uh, -uh no, not anymore. Not anymore. He's got away. He's gotten away with this long enough. Now it's time. It's time for that bastard to pay and pay yep. and pay. And I, it's sometimes, you know, characters, Again, I don't necessarily have the same eye for performance and stuff that other people do. So when characters make these huge decisions, I don't necessarily always track it. But this one, you don't need a whole, at least I don't think you need a whole lot of brains to figure out what Casey's thought process on this was. Why did she make this decision? I think that 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 business with the beast when she was in, in, in the cage that was the real come to Jesus moment for. So whatever you want to do with that. Mm -hmm. I think that's reasonable. Oh, and, and, uh, for the sake of this particular fictional character, I hope that's what happened to her. <laughs> Me as well. So, um, we're getting near the end of this thing now in a, in a different hideout. It's not really made clear where, but in a different right. hideout, Dennis, Patricia and Hedwig discuss the power of the beast and their plans to change the world. Now it's one line but I want to I want to harp on this a little bit because this really is my favorite McAvoy scene in the entire movie. Yeah, um, it's done in a mirror. And at least to start with, you know, the camera panning to one section of the mirror to a different section accompanies a shift in character. But there comes a moment when the character shifts are coming so rapidly. Right. The, I think the horde is so drunk on its own power that now even the camera can't keep up with it, all these shifts that are taking place. And it is just, um, again, a bravura acting performance here that we're, that we're seeing from uh, McAvoy that unlike the scene in the kitchen where the, the shift from one altar to another is that's the occasion of some physical discomfort for Kevin we're not really seeing that here. It's mm -hmm. it's a really smooth shift. And the only giveaway, apart from the different accents that the characters use, the only giveaway is the change in facial expressions. Mm -hmm. There's a defined range of facial expressions that Hedwig uses that Patricia doesn't. There's a, there's a certain bearing that Dennis has that Hedwig simply lacks. And... All of that is communicated, again, not just with the voice, not just with the words and the dial or the monologue, I guess. Um, it, McAvoy is singularly carrying this stuff all by himself that you can mute, because I did it, 
you can mute the movie and you know who's speaking based upon the way McAvoy's carrying himself. I mean, this is just an incredible performance. And and, and in that scene, you don't have the clue of the different clothing where no. you do with an early, earlier in the film. There's actually a scene, it's right here towards the end where the investigators are finding things to, uh, under the zoo where there is a, a rack of clothing. And, and it's labeled with, with the handle, exactly. Uh, the toothbrushes, the different toothbrushes, but there's a uh, rack of clothing, and, and, and you do see a few of the names uh, there with their 15 to 20 uh, outfits each. Yeah, can, can you imagine being um, a maintenance guy in a zoo trying to wardrobe like up to 23 different people? I, I mean, I imagine the Beast has a pretty minimal wardrobe requirement, but <laughs> everyone else, yeah. that's a... That's a lot of toothpaste. That's a lot of uh, grippies. That's a lot of socks. <laughs> I'm just saying. A lot of pants. So that's really the official end of the movie. And up that, to, Oh, and like, this is what I wanted to mention. Like, Damn yeah. it, I can't believe I forgot this. Now, there have been people who wanted to call the, the coming of the beast. That's the twist of the movie, that the beast was real. And no, that, like you said in your, your Facebook messages to me, that's a reveal. Okay, that's that's the plot, or the narrative basically consummating itself. Everything that had been promised in the story up to that point gets paid off right in that empty train car, and that's the real, that's that's the reveal. That is not a twist. It was guaranteed from the beginning. Night doesn't lie. If there's a twist in this movie, we just got to it. And it's right here in a diner, Several patrons watch as a, as a news correspondent reports that Kevin's numerous personalities have earned, have earned him the nickname The Horde. Now, the thing is, The Horde was said at least two or three times long before yeah. this news report. So, whatever. But uh, anyway. A waitress notes the similarity to the case of a wheelchair-bound criminal incarcerated 15 years earlier who was also given a nickname. As she tries to recall the nickname, the man sitting next to her, David Dunn, says it was Mr. Glass. The end. And again, this is one of those moments when having watched, knowing if, I, if I'd had the chance to go into this movie and watch all of it, knowing nothing at all about the movie and then get to this moment organically, there's a chance that the giveaway might have been all that unbreakable music that's uh, that's scored in the background. That alone may have given it away for me. I don't know. But obviously, seeing, you know, Bruce Willis, he's really there. He really does say, Mr. Glass, he's wearing a shirt that has the name Dunn on it. That That's who this guy is. I think that would have been just such a big moment for me, you know? And I kind of... I do sort of regret the fact that I didn't, that this was spoiled and I didn't get a chance to see this as it was intended. So, uh, now, did you know the spoiler going in or? Yes, yes. I, and, and in general, those things don't bother me. Spoilers tend, tend to not bother me. But hmm. that one, that one would have been kind of cool to have gotten fresh. Yeah. Now, let, let me ask you this. Sure. This was, we got to, the sort of that final dialogue of of the horde you know we we are what we believe we are he'll protect us 
let us show the world how powerful we can be. Yeah. And right there we get a, I don't know if you get a fade to black, or we get a just a split or a, whatever it says. Title card, yeah. Yeah, title card, and then we immediately go into this diner scene. Yeah. Now, would you have preferred this reveal scene, this twist, where it is here? Or, since we're talking the world of comic books, <laughs> mid-credit, post-credit scene? Um, no, I think, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people who, look, I very much believe in that whole, you know, death of the author thing that you interpret things as you want. And I also believe that, as I've said many times, we all bring our baggage to this. And so you interpret things maybe the way that you interpret things, which isn't the way I do. But I'm also a big believer in staying off of the artist's balls, okay? Just give him some space. Now, you can think whatever you want to think about the creative decisions he makes, whether he's good or bad or what. But I'm a real big, I mean, you know, I, I don't, I want to be careful, you know, when I second guess not so much what they sure. do, because that's one, because, you know, that's what we're here to do. Talk about what they do, but how they do it. I think we need to be careful with stuff like that. So now mm -hmm. that that's kind of a long way of saying that I do think it's actually placed properly. If this had been a post a, a post credit or even mid credit scene, I think people might have wanted to uh, attach a little bit too much bandwagon jumping to Marvel. Um, that's fair, right? Um, doing it this way, the film officially ends with the title card, and you could think of this as kind of an interesting little postscript. Right, yeah, it's epilogue something. Yeah. But but it's still within the body of the film, quote-unquote, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a really clever and effective way of doing it. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, I mean, I kind of wonder sometimes, do people even know what post-credit sequence means? Because when I first watched this, I was expecting that I was going to have to go all the way to the end of the movie. Right, like, right. After the because people kept calling this a post credits scene, and it's not. It's not even mid credits. It's a pre credit scene. It's a scene in the movie. And uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm the only one who gets ranty about <laughs> stuff like that. But I don't know. It. Uh, I. I kind of. I didn't like that. So um, anyway, but yeah, no, I like it just fine. Now, what about you? Yeah, I think it's think fine this way. I think it's fine this way. I like it. Right. I think it because of the immediacy of it, it's boom, boom, boom. These things are happening. You know, I, I like that. Yeah, you think the movie's ended, and it, it to some extent it is ended with room for a sequel, right? Mm -hmm. It's ended. It's ended with the bad guy alive, and planning, <laughs> and planning to escalate, right? So it 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 it. Our main character, uh, Casey, her story is wrapped up. We have resolution. Then we have this, I mean, it's a, again, it's a comic book. We have this last two panels where we get the, the preview for, for next issue. And then we get another one right after. Yes, indeed. So I like that. I, I, I do like that. It, 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 it is a bit of a twist on, on it, it. It's a twist on how we've come to expect that information to be delivered, as you said. <laughs> You know, by, by sort of doing it the old-fashioned way, it's a change of pace. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it's... Um, one of the things that I think a lot of movies, this m sort of MCU world that we live in now, I think a lot... I, I sometimes resent the amount of influence that the MCU has exerted in that I think 
a lot of directors would have been tempted to have this as a post-credits scene just because hey that's what marvel does and everyone loves marvel and you know just to be fair this movie was was produced on a nine million dollar budget and it went on to gross 278 and a half million dollars all i see is this is the box office so is that worldwide or is that the u.s i don't know but either way that's that a tremendous oh it is all right well either way that's a considering it's it, it's nine million dollars we're talking about here probably maybe another nine anywhere from nine to fifteen million marketing budget that is a tremendous roi so obviously knight did something right so um but sometimes sometimes you, you see the influence of of one particular thing seeping a bit too much into something else and it gets to a level where it's just not appropriate anymore you know and i'm really glad that this is a as you say epilogue that's a good way to put it it's just kind of a blink and you miss it just really rapid fire epilogue and then that's the end of the movie and i i think that's the most effective way to do it now one question i've got for you assuming that you're the type to play favorites how does this film split how does this stack up to unbreakable in your mind is this a, a better movie lesser movie equal how does it work for you well actually let me answer that more uh, more broadly sure because in in i i i looked up some information i did a little research the imdb score for the two movies identical hmm. 7.3 uh rotten tomatoes if you look at the critics and the audience it's all in the same ballpark they're all in the 70s hmm. uh, oh, no, both movies on both of those scores hmm. how about this one you mentioned the box office now the box office for split was higher but it yes. was 16 years later and and you've got the inflation and all that both movies ranked freaky 23rd on the list on the box office list for their respective years wow so they truly are equals huh? they truly are equals <laughs> very strange very strange uh, actually the uh, rotten tomatoes was slightly higher for split than for than for unbreakable and you know it it is hard to it's hard to separate out the works themselves mm -hmm. from the creator and split coming uh, Shyamalan's comeback had started a little bit before yes. couple, the last couple of movies one of them he may have only produced or only directed there was a, a see he was recovering his reputation a little bit right so you know, and and it's it. So it's it, that's all the context for this, right? Because right. this one, this one really comes out of nowhere, in 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 in, in a sense. I mean, you could argue, like some argued, his last good movie had been Unbreakable. I would have gone as we talked last time, or maybe last week. That, that we think his skill and his ability to deliver good movies lasted a little longer. Yes. A couple of movies past that, but even but even being generous, it had been maybe ten years since I think he'd he'd had a 
top-notch movie. Yeah, like bona fide hit. Yeah, no yeah. question. Bona fide hit, bona fide uh, critical and and you know uh, popular. I mean, it's a joke. It was a joke for a while. Yeah. And uh, so again, you know the the context to some extent I think I think Unbreakable is a little overlooked at least at the time because it 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 didn't live up to six cents expectations and this one certainly blew by every expectation you'd have yeah and that is at this point in his career yeah and that is a weird god that is just a weird twist of fate right there all you know, of that, that to say I don't know I like them both I can't yeah. <laughs> Well, and I, I tend to agree. It's just the thing about this that really works for me. And again, I'm not trying to be evasive or anything like that, but I honestly do not know when I'm going to be able to release, um, you know, this uh, East Rail 177 trilogy uh, episode, uh, series of episodes that we're doing. Um, so at the time that you and I are talking right now, um, the 2019 Joker film is still several months away. But one of the reasons that I just cannot wait to see that freaking movie is because of the fact that it is such a big change of pace. Much like Split, it looks like Joker is going to be a, a protracted supervillain origin story. And when you think about it, those are not exactly a dime a dozen, okay? A Split is the first one, at least that I can think of, where the I would say like 99.5% of the narrative focus is in some way or another directly on the villain. You know, there's that little bit in the diner at the end, but otherwise, this is this is a movie about, let's face it, the coming of the beast. And this is a serious rarity in anything that's even tangentially related to comic book cinema. And so as a result of that, it could be that this movie's just insane amount of originality is kind of coloring my perceptions a bit. You know, whereas if this sort of thing was a bit more commonplace, I could more easily come up with an ordering of Unbreakable, Split, and then whatever else. You know, what is it? You know, which one of these is the best? Which one is just, you know, God, I just can't wait to rewatch this movie. I love it. You know, um, it's harder to do that just because they are, both of them, Unbreakable and Split, are just so unique in their own special ways. Right. Different, from, different e from each other. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, yeah. and so it's it's they don't exactly fit into a continuum with one they're same narrative same universe same characters but anyway so it's kind of hard to make a comparison the reason I dropped that question on you is precisely because I struggle with it so much myself <laughs> and then I remind myself you know what not everything has to be measured and quantified and organized maybe it's it, it's fair to say they're both equally good they're both they equally my favorite so I don't know and that, unless you've got anything else, that's basically it for for Split. It's this is just a tremendous movie, and I would I'll say though, don't watch this movie in a vacuum. At the very least, watch Unbreakable first, and then watch this movie. Then what you do after that is up to you. But at the very least, don't watch this as a standalone piece because how whatever narrative structure and strength this thing has, it's ultimately not meant to be seen in a vacuum, you know? So that's my recommendation, but you guys do what you want. Do you have any parting shots on this thing before we uh, call it a day here? I do not. 
All right. So, well, uh, first up, thank you very much for joining in on this. And at this point, giving me, it looks like it's over, way <laughs> over two hours of your time. Sorry about that, Chief. <laughs> hey, no problem. I feels like I owe you the apology. Last time we went long, this time we went even longer. So, uh, the, uh, but, uh, thank you for, for joining in. Thank you for thank giving you me so for much the of your time. Very much oh, happy, happy to, happy to. Now, before we, before we go our, uh, separate ways, uh, why don't you go ahead and I'm sure that everyone knows if they listen to last week's episode, but just to be on the safe side, why don't you tell everybody where it is that they can find Professor Allen and uh, all of your different internet projects that you've got going. <clears throat> uh, two Spots, the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, home of the Quarterbin Podcast, Short Box Showcase, shows like that, and since about 2016, uh, M and I have also done a side project called Dorkness to Light, blog and podcast and a Tumblr about religion and spirituality and theology and where those things intersect with pop culture. And um, I can't imagine, you know, what possible uh, theological connection this movie could have. Oh, wait, it's not the Beast. <laughs> hmm. And he wants to change the world. Okay. Well, whatever. So, but no, seriously, uh, I listen to those shows. They're they're a ton of fun, and especially Darkness to Light. This is it basically goes into my wheelhouse two different ways. So it's the best of both worlds for me. So all of it is highly recommended, and the Tumblr is just it's just hilarious. Let's be real, it's it's funny. So, uh, but I think that is pretty much it for me for this week. Now as to next week, this is a trilogy. So what do you want to bet that next week I'm going to be rejoined by Professor Allen to talk about? 2019's Glass. I'm thinking the odds are probably pretty good there, but that's that's next week, so I think that's pretty much it for me this week. Bye, everybody. I will see you next week. <sighs> Two and a half hours, man. Wow. So let's talk about So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. 
But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise! Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And, just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. Everybody, Magnus here. The hiatus is over and Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is back. And you know what else is back? Magnus talks about Smallville. My podcast, usual discussion about comics, movies, and 
and TV shows periodically gets put on hold so that I can go full fanboy on Smallville. Smallville is the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history, and personally, it's my favorite live-action incarnation of Superman. And I'm not alone either, because listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville is, and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. Now that the hiatus is over, I'm planning to continue my reappraisal of Smallville Phase 2 by taking a deep dive into the Sainted Season 7. Through the course of my discussion, I'll reveal why the Sainted Season 7 is my favorite season of Smallville's entire run, and I want you along for the ride. Check out Magnus Talks About Smallville, returning to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality in the summer of 2019 and listen for yourself about why Smallville in general and the Sainted Season 7 in particular are both awesome. Magnus talks about Smallville. Coming back soon to 2TrueFreaks.com. <laughs>